Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. This audio edition is created in conjunction with partners as part of our Market Voice series. So you think you know about Generation Z, selfish, demanding idealists and tech-savvy digital natives challenging cultural norms. Most of that actually could sound like parts of the countercultural movement of the 60s and 70s. Similar cycles, nothing new you could say, and let's face it, the hippies didn't change capitalism. But when it comes to Gen Z, we should think again, say the co-founders of the renowned consumer insights and intelligence firm, The Future Laboratory. Martin Raymond and Chris Sanderson have been in Australia off the back of a brief commissioned by JC Deco to delve deeply into this emerging generation about to hit the economy with their style of values and consumption. Martin and Chris are great defenders of Gen Z as a future powerhouse, and they've uncovered some instructive new insights on why we older grumpy types should listen up, and I am. I've got lots of questions, so let's get to the people who know lots of stuff. So welcome, Martin and Chris. Um, Let's get to this one. Gen Z, Chris, let's start with you. Out of the study and the work you've just completed, what have you learnt that's new, different or challenging from some of all the the sort of the research and conversations you've been having with this generation? And maybe just at the top, let's explain who this Gen Z is, how old they are and, and why they're important. Thanks, Paul. Hi. Well, I think I'd like to kick off by challenging some of the gross misrepresentations you made there of this particular generation. I'm up for that. <laughs> because, I mean, look, let's face it. We are talking about the Greta Thunberg generation. They're here to save the planet, Paul. They're here to uh, actually look after all of us and make sure we've got a future. They're an incredibly important generation. And I suppose for, um, you know, to set some context, we're talking about a generation that's born between around, and, and these kind of, these demographics are always rather loose, but approximately 1997 to about 2012. So we're talking about a, a pre-teen generation all the way through to uh, young adults who have now left university or higher education and are, are in the workforce. So it's a massive generation. And it's also crossing, of course, all of those really important um, changes that we see in our own life states. So it's still a very fluid generation. It's still a generation where they get, as it were, to settle down. And yet some, I think, very clear characteristics around mindset and behavior have already started to emerge. And as I said, the challenge that I would say is, is that the first and the key one is that this is actually a generation that's incredibly mindful that aren't actually just obsessed about themselves and are selfish. If anything, they're turning out to be the reverse. And they're classically, I think, a generation that is about going from a state of me, a focus on self, learning about oneself. In marketing terms, we call this self-actualizing, to understanding oneself, to actually being all about we, about community, um, about collectivism, about saving the planet but often about doing this on a very local level rather than necessarily just on a big, high political spectrum sort of way that maybe we've seen with previous generations. So for us, they're a massively important uh, generation that really are going to have a profound impact on society and consumer behaviour and hopefully politics over the next 20 years. Their point of view is that nobody is listening. 
So what they're saying is we've had enough of conversation. We've had enough of, uh, you know, vague, empty political promises and, and um, commitments. And what they want to do and what they're stepping up, and this is what the, the, the report brought out, is they're not just talking about it. They are acting upon their ideas. So thinking about how they're engaging, not with climate change, but with climate crisis, you know, how they are challenging brands about purpose. And they're saying, well, it's not about purpose. It's about doing. It's about being responsible. And it's also about the consequences. So while a lot of brands, if you think about this, think about heritage, this generation think about legacy. They say, what are you going to leave? How are you going to behave? What can we do? Because I think they're not like Gen X. We're forever complaining and, and, and kvetching and telling us all how the world was, was terrible and awful and in fact how terrible and awful it was for them. But in fact, this generation is saying, look, how can we help? And this is one of the things that came through in the report. It was what I call the three C's. It was community, collaboration, commitment. You know, they have these three ways of engaging. And to Chris's point, it is about we, not about I. But increasingly, and I think this is where, where politicians and, and governments are out of step, they are not delivering on what this group wants. And if you think about Australia, they make up a pretty sizable part of the population, one. Number two, quite a lot of them were born abroad. They're not born in Australia. So their views are different and their ways of engaging with government and locality and the people around them will be hugely different. So Australia is about to face a huge sea yeah. change of, of challenge, but also I think, as we'll discover from going through the contents of the report, opportunity and ways that potentially we can get out of the mess that they would see older generations have put us into. Some really good points there, and I'll, I'll first say um, well done for putting a journo back in his place. Got my setup completely wrong, so um, sorry about that, but it was worth getting some provocative responses from you both about how wrong I was. But anyway, that's, that's a good start. Second thing is just before we get into it, you touched on it there uh, for a moment, Martin, but how different is, is this generation, is Generation Z to X to Y to the millennials? You, you sort of touched on it, but is it starkly different or incremental? I think it's it's starkly different. I always think about how, you know, you look at each generation. So so post-war boomers were very much about I, individuality. Rightly, they were about, you know, creating a sense of self. Uh, when you think about the, what I call the forgotten generation, Generation Jones, you know, which would be my age, which would be more about uh, that, that kind of filofax, wielding, competitive, uh, first on the slopes, you know, entrepreneurs you found in the 80s and 90s, which is very much about the global perspective, you know, getting everything out into the big global world. Then you had Gen X, which was very much about uncertainty and about multiple careerism and portfolio uh, work practices and perhaps a bit more questioning about their position in the world. So that to me is the beginning of a different kind of approach and process and thinking. And suddenly millennials, you know, gone from global to local, seasonal, organic, authentic. So suddenly we're in a different uh, mindset and, and, and framing. And whoa, hang on a minute. When they have children, because remember millennials who seem to think that they're still young and going about with beards and buns and pedaling on bikes and that, <laughs> they're now in their late 30s, early 40s. They have children. Who are those children? Mm. Gen Z. And if you think about that, what you now have are more compassionate uh, more active, more concerning, caring. They're not actually about 
localism anymore. They believe in the global soul and they believe that change yeah. can come about by collaboration on an international level. And yeah. then I think, you know, th th that's where we are now with these people. Absolutely. And I think what's really interesting is that, you know, we've now been through, this is a, a second digital generation. So it's not simply that they've, you know, always had access to, a, to an iPad or to being able to get online. It's, it's actually the fact that they've been bombarded with content. So the notion of digital content, since they can remember, and that sense of the immersive way in which they use content, I think is hugely important here. And as we start to really deal with and face the the fallout of um, an age of digital burnout, all of these issues that this generation face, I think, is changing the way that they deal with comms, with digital content and with brand engagement, which is why I think going back to the report that we produced and delivered for JC Bicot is why the relationship that they have with, say, out of home is so important because for them, it they don't see it as an intrusion. They see it as a logical kind of seamless connection with their world of brand and their world of communication and their world of engagement. And, and this, again, is what I think makes them so different from, from other generations. We'll delve into media consumption a little bit later, but I'll take your point. What I'm, I mean, there's, there's a couple of, there's so much to, where do we start? But let's start here. Why don't we start with the economics and the, and the, the size of this generation and why, maybe not now in terms of spending power, but very soon, brands, companies, everybody, politicians need to get our collective heads around where the values are headed. Well, uh, as Martin said, you know, according to research from McCrindle here in Australia, Gen Z comprise around 20% of Australia's population. And globally, there are almost 2 billion of them. So just by dint of their sheer size, they are becoming and, and already are an incredibly important economic demographic. Okay. Next bit is, you, you mentioned something, Chris, which sounded interesting to me, is digital burnout. I heard it a few years back, but is, is are you talking about digital burnout for Gen uh, Z or for me, the old, the really, like, whatever I am? <laughs> I think digital burnout is something that we're seeing across the generations and relates, I think, more to, to mindset than it does to necessarily age. And it really is about one's own ability or proficiency and capacity for coping with living in an always-on environment. And I think how um, and how much we all personally engage with social platforms, with news platforms, with commerce, with shopping platforms, with e-commerce, is highly individual and really doesn't relate necessarily particularly to age. It, it's more about the choices that we make. And so therefore, digital burnout is something we're seeing across generations. How we deal with that is, I think, different depending on age. And how we respond to that is something that I think we start to see differently. This generation, for example, are much better at switching on and off than uh, their parents. I think because they've grown up in an always-on culture, they have an ability to just turn off when they choose, when they want to. It might not seem like that to a lot of parents, but I think when I look for, for digital obsessives, I tend to look for people over the age of 45, and they're the ones who I find who are continually obsessing about being on their phone, staying in contact, um, and having that kind of sense that they're just always present, they're always there. Well, guilty, Your Honour. Sorry about that one. But it's interesting because, um, you know, I've got a 21-year-old doing all the things you talk about, basically at university studying environmental science. I find it interesting uh, that when he does come home now, it's like, uh, so I know you lecture me about all the bad things that I've been doing, but 
how about you turn the lights out? That'll be a good start. But that's they're, they're around the edges, right? There's a little bit of... I've even got some blemishes. I can't believe it. I, I sort of don't do what I say sometimes. What I'm interested in is, um, Martin, you talked about uh, communities and collectivism. Can we dig a bit more into that and what that means and how different that is compared to other generations and what the implications are that are, are there for brands, for communications, for society, culture? They are more left-leaning. You know, if you look at their politics and you speak to them about their political stance or ask them to mark out on the spectrum where they would sit, a lot of them would lean towards the left. Not because they're necessarily leftists in thinking, but because a lot of their thinking would be part of how we associate the left to be. So a view of, for example, um, climate change, uh, you know, about universal wage, about, you know, shared social responsibilities, about transport being in the public realm, you know, about food for all. So all of these notions are very much a part of their their kind of language and identity and agendas. But I think more relevantly, if you think about how they use social media, it is about collective activities. You know, it is about collaboration. And I don't know if you work with them. We have a lot of... of, um, Gen Z in our offers. But when you want to make a decision, you can't do what we used to do, which was to make the decision and say, look, we've decided on this, having done a bit, you know, straw polling around whatever, they say, well, we need to discuss it. And everybody feels they need to make an input and feel that they need to have a point of view and that you're trying to reach consensus. So what I call, you know, in the old days, our decisions were very pointed. They look like pyramids. Now decisions look more circular and consensual. And I think this is also the shape of our decision-making is different. The way we reach those decisions are different. And if you think about, for example, you know, decentralized autonomous organization or DAOs, which, you know, people working in, in the area of crypto will be fairly familiar with, there is an argument, and they are beginning to bring it towards us, that this is how businesses should potentially be run in the future. And governments and organizations, and it's much more, not just democratic, but there is no head as such. What you have are everybody voting on one thing, and that collective vote giving us a decision which we then all agree to and we all sign up to. So I think their their, their language is different, their methodology is different, um, the way they relate to each other. And I always go, if you go to meetings, you know what you tend to find is that there is more listening, discussion, Incremental agreement, you know, we want to reach a decision straight away. They want to reach it over time and with everybody on board. So even culturally, they are behaving differently. And if you think about how that affects advertising and marketing, they expect to have an opinion and a conversation and a collaboration with the brand. So they don't expect the brand to tell them something. And even that should come down to the kind of clothing. We're seeing a lot of brands now that if you're... Uh, hierarchical about this, the notion of crowdsourcing clothing would seem ludicrous. You know, so many people involved in the decision-making process. But actually, when you see it, it works. The same thing about advertising, about marketing on billboards. You know, if you realize that in advance you have commitment and agreement and the input from a lot of people, then that surely guarantees the success of the campaign. And it guarantees the sharing of the campaign. And it guarantees that you're creating a campaign that, as we would say in, in forecasting, is sticky you know, something that has an ability to go out and spread itself in the community. So while a lot of people criticize or are sneerful or are doubtful about these things, I say, well, look, you know, evidence shows that 
we haven't been so great in the past. I mean, you know, I'm going to remind people historically that past was never better. It was never more successful and it was never more uh, inclusive to people than we are now. So worst case, we can give it a go. Best case, we can go, you know, collectivism isn't such a bad idea. Collaboration, well, that sounds like an interesting way to do it. And both, as we know, and I know this from my own researches and my own books, the more people you ask for an opinion or an input, the more likelihood it is that you are going to get ultimately an idea that is sticky and appealing and successful. So against all of that evidence, uh, I always find surprising, and I think Chris will do the same, that when we deliver these reports, we are forever being faced with with scepticism and people going, well, this is all very well, but, and I kind of go, look, you know, if we're in such jeopardy and such dire straits, what have we got to lose? I mean, we can't get it worse than it is at the moment. So, you know, let's kind of give Look, collectivism that, you know, that, That's the killer the point, isn't it, Martin? Yeah. The killer point is that, yeah, we, we, we haven't really done too much greatness yet. With this, we have, we've got form as a society and as humans for sort of maybe we should change some things up. One of the things I'm interested in is two things quickly. Does it mean that older gens, i.e. me, have to accept that things are going to be slower? You sort of you pointed to that to both you, Chris or, or Martin on this, but does the process slow because it's more considered collective community and what about the output? Is it diluted or is it bang on? That's a really interesting point, Paul. And I think there's a real conundrum here, I think, in that concept of fast and slow, because at the point in which we're maybe trying to create a slower society, because we potentially see that as being more beneficial for the environment on all levels, which is that we take more time to consider, we take more time to think, we do things slowly, we consume things more slowly. The planet, as we know, is speeding up. There are more billions more of us on the planet. We are consuming quicker than ever before. And I think it's that understanding of the, the stresses and the pressures that come from those two diametrically opposed forces that is one of the key issues that, that this generation are trying to, trying to deal with and are, are trying to get their heads around. Yeah, and I, for instance, just take that as you know how they approach work, how they approach community and collectivism. Does it mean then that when you get to uh, some of their values, what is the halo effect that that generation is having on generations above it? Certainly, we see you know the younger generations influence older in terms of technology, for instance, and adaption and so forth. But how does it go in terms of values? Can this generation really shift? some, you know, rusted on thinking that might be in the older gens or is that where, yeah, so the, the impact, the spread, intergenerational spread that this crew are going to have on us? Yeah, I, well, de- well, definitely. I mean, if you look at research that Vice, the sort of media platform have conducted, according to some research that they've done globally, almost half of Gen Z, about 47%, list their values as a key building block of their identity, um, more than their age and more than gender and sexuality, which really surprised me because given the fact that this is the generation that's all about identity and breaking down identity and creating new codes around the whole idea of non-binary identity, which was one of the, the key, I think, discriminators of what makes this generation so different. But it is this sense of value. But I think what's interesting about them that again makes them different from other generations is that they are not necessarily unified in their perception or their understanding of values and 
it's not necessarily joined up right now. And again, I think that's what's interesting is that they have values. They list them really highly. They rank them really highly. And I think they are influential with other generations. But as yet, as a cohort, maybe the shift that we haven't yet seen is is this coalescing of values around key central tenets that will potentially have a massive impact in the years to come. I think that's still to come. That hasn't happened yet. The fact that as a generation, I think that, that they're aware of the power that they hold and they're aware of the opportunity that sits with that power. But I don't think it's necessarily been fully realized yet. But what's really interesting around that is I think as a generation, what makes this so in, so interesting and so exciting is the fact that they're by and large an optimistic generation. So whilst they can see all the problems that they face, they do understand. I mean, according to some research that JC Decoe conducted as part of this project, 72% of Gen Z respondents agree that their generation has the power to change the views and behaviours of other generations. And I think this is where we start to see what's going to happen in the future is, is this opportunity for quite radical change, which sits around this opportunity, this optimism that yes, we can make a difference and we'll do that collectively and we can really influence how our future society may look and also how it may operate. It's a really good observation in that, you know, if you look at We Are Eight, I mean, that that is based on everything you're talking about for Gen Z, that nails it for them. Now it's going to be interesting, the proof in the pudding is whether something that's a, a platform that's based on essentially Gen Z ideals whether the behaviour follows because and, and also can something, can values break network effect because, you know, network effect is a big, big, big factor on how all social platforms, how tech works. So it's going to be interesting to watch that. Can the Gen Z or will Gen Z shift based on values in terms of their communications platforms. Example being, we saw lots of talk, you know, we've had a lot of conversation at MI3 about this, you know, two or three years ago, Coles came out to and banned plastic bags in the supermarket. But such was the uproar from customers, they brought them back in again. uh, And it was okay. So the the say-do conundrum is there. I'd be interesting to see, you know, what your initial, what's your hunch, both of you, on, for instance, a value social platform like um, We Are Eight, uh, wooing that crowd. Yeah, well, I think to answer that question for you, Paul, I mean, according to Havas, 84% of young Gen Zs buy on beliefs. So that that journey that we've seen over the last 50 years in terms of the value versus values equation, I think is more entrenched with this generation than it's ever been with any other generation before. And, And whilst they may not have the spending power to actually live by that quite yet, I think the fact that that's their starting point is hugely important. And I think that that really starts to underpin the way that they think about engagement with brand and responsibility around brand and the type of brands that they want to engage with and be seen to to be engaging with. Incrementally, these things move forward. And I would say that if I did a kind of a, a straw poll among, you know, most of my friends who are across three generations, roughly speaking, they would have a fairly good agreement on climate change, you know, on the notion of how we need to really consider, you know, the way the world is progressing politically, socially, structurally, you know, business responsibilities, our responsibility to our community and to ourselves. And I think, uh, you know, that being the case, 
a lot of what Gen Z is saying is not out of kilter with what I'm finding among their grandparents and what I'm finding among the kind of millennial parents. I think the big generational gap is what I call the Gen Joneses, who are those people between 50-something and 60, who've kind of gone missing. You know, they're the entrepreneurs, they're the competitive people, they're the ones very much about self, the ones very much about what, what if you remember that term that was used ages ago, you know, about the notion that you pulled yourself up, you got rewarded uh, for what you did. And as a consequence, yeah, you might be generous to other people, but it was about yourself, your family, your community, your country, and then others. This Gen Z group, rather than accept the politicians, are going, let's see what brands can do. Let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can do socially online. So they're taking a, a sort of um, a backdoor approach to maybe reactivating democracy. And I just think, well, should I be cynical or should I give them a chance and let them see what they're going to do and maybe help them along the route? Well, there's so much in there, and I, I, we've got two core themes we need to cover before we wind this up. But there's there's a little bit of hope for me in that I did have my 21 year old uh, tell me the other about three or four weeks ago. He said, "Dad, you're not as full of shit as I thought you were when I was 16 or 17." I thought that's progress. So we can do okay with that. What you just talked about then, Martin, was, um, you know, we start getting into a whole notion of, okay, this generation, what brands and companies have to do to be relevant and land with Gen Z. Uh, versus Gen Y or Millennials, X, whatever, you, boomers. It starts to get really fractured, doesn't it, in terms of the nuance and how you talk to them and therefore it gets expensive as well for a brand because suddenly you may have products that work with land, with one set, messaging that's different. So I guess um, a big picture for both of you is how do companies, brands and products sort of bring all those those competing forces together with fractured values and, and consumption styles? Yeah, that well, that's the... $24 billion question, isn't it, really? Or however many billions you want to attach yes, to it. And, and more. there is no simple answer. Yeah, there is no simple answer, which is that, yes, you know, if you're involved in working for a brand and you're involved in, in advertising, communications, any element of sales or marketing, our jobs have consistently got harder over the years, not easier, because everything to do with that simple world that we once lived in where we define people according to the neighborhood they lived in their gender and then how much money they made with those three factors now are kind of the last things that we choose to consider you know we've now got to a point where pew research the biggest global research company in the world is is being challenged by scientists who is telling them and lobbying them that they should no longer really look at age demographics as a suitable or viable way in which to to break down the society and to target people and how irrelevant that is. So, so yes, you know, we are increasingly prismatic. We are increasingly fragmented. We are increasingly expecting a company to talk to us as an individual um, on a one-to-one -one basis, which is a return to how we used to have relationships with a shopkeeper which was really, you know, take, go, go back 70, 80 odd years. And, you know, we didn't really think about a relationship with a brand. We thought about a relationship with a shopkeeper, the person who sold us a product that we needed. Whereas now, of course, we're interested in having relationships with the company that makes the sneakers that we choose to buy. And we're as interested in buying all of the peripheral elements that surround that actual product the solid thing that we put on our foot as much as we are with that that product and the complexity around that yes right and that's going to say that would land that sort of notion lands with gen z does gen x or boomers 
care as much? Well, look, all of us, I think, yearn for a sense of loyalty um, and shared loyalty between the customer and the brand. That's what the the journey of sort of, you know, brand engagement and that and self-actualization that we've all been on over the last sort of, you know, 60 odd years, in, in, you know, since the classic sort of, diff, you know, kind of post-war period of growth that's what all of us have been on which is that we want to be recognized we want to be recognized by our peers when we buy the right product and wear it in public and for the you know the aspirational sense of social security that it brings to us the idea that we're recognized as you know wearing the, the right pair of sneakers you know carrying the right handbag wearing the right watch driving the right car or the one that we believe fits in with our lifestyle and demonstrates our success and our, our progress uh, and our prowess in front of our, our peers and society in general in some ways gen z are no different to any other generation in their relationship with brand that you know they are highly aspirational they are highly brand savvy they are highly brand focused but i think what we're beginning to see is this connection with uh, and this desire for as martin said a collaborative engagement with brand which goes one step further really interesting so um we've got one more area we need to talk about before we wind this up and have a second third and fourth series of this conversation i think it's really good but the um the thing is around media behavior and interestingly media behavior and sort of IRL in real life and i think one of you talked earlier about um sort of in the context of sort of out of home and public spaces that out of home is sort of one of the last, will be one of the last or is the last great broadcast medium. But in terms of media behaviours with this generation, um, there's a few really interesting points here. We're not going to get through all of them, but you both talk about viewtility, egoless marketing, paradox personas, hyperphysical hotspots and multi-sensory media. Maybe give us um, each of you a view on, on the media landscape and what's happening there in your view with, with Gen Z. Oh, that all sounds great, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I'm very impressed. <laughs> I think really uh, what we're trying to highlight is um, how, in some ways, fragmented and fractured. So, you know, if you talk about, and we've had that conversation where we see this media or mediums as fragmented and fractured, and I point out, well, they aren't just new types of channel. You know, it's new ways of communicating. It's new pathways to um, opening up opportunity. And I think the reason we tend to break things down, like, you know, we look at, at the notion of utility as a term, it's a made up term, it's a portmanteau term. And it's trying to, to, I guess, pull together the notion that the screen as we see it traditionally, the billboard as we see it, was, was kind of two-dimensional and it was printed. You remember printed billboards and, you know, sure that do. was it. Yeah, they didn't yeah. move until, until they were changed. Now, because of electronic billboards and immersive billboards and billboards that can have sound, uh, light, smell, vibrate, because there's all of these opportunities, the presence of the billboard can become greater than some of its parts. So it can't, it doesn't have to be just about advertising and marketing. It can be about driving opinion and consensus. So if you think about what happened, uh, you know, during the, the death of, um, the, I'm going to call her the English Queen, because I know Australia will, will hopefully uh, make a decision about republicanism sooner or later. But certainly, you know, what Deco did in England was to change all of the billboards at the same time. So you had this great residual image of Elizabeth, and I think it was that monochrome or close to monochrome picture. So again, it was quite an impactive presence on the landscape. And that demonstrated the power of what we were calling, you know, utility, that it was a collaboration. 
It was a coming together. It was a drive towards consensus. So I think what we're beginning to see is, you know, I've other examples where um, the billboards have been used to collaborate with brands. So I think it was the Council of Small Business Organizations in Australia, you know, working with local communities to photograph and then to publish on billboards examples of mom and pop retailers that we'd like to go to. You know, these are the people we celebrate as shoppers and these are the things we'd like to put up on the billboard. So I think what we were trying to get a sense of is how billboards aren't just about flat, you know, just kind of transactional. They are proactive, progressive, collaborative, but also there's an opportunity for advertisers and for marketers to spell out different messages how these things can be fun. And you know, one of the great things about advertising and marketing and comms is how it makes us laugh. You know, that's what makes something viral, that makes us share it, makes it handed on. And I think what we're beginning to see is creativity return to the outdoor space and creativity return to, to, you know, billboards and marketing and advertising. And I think that's as a consequence of TikTok, a consequence of WeChat, you know, WhatsApp, all of these things, we're beginning to understand the playfulness of the media and then bring that back to the market. Because I think, you know, the last 10 years, either they became about what we call tag ads, peel away ads, or ads that were just selling value. And I think now we're back to stuff that's about humor and about color and about amusement and about perhaps challenging. And some meaning perhaps too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just a kind of a bit, bit more depth to them. And I think agencies, when I chat to people who work in ad- advertising agencies and in marketing teams and, and, and canaries like billboards, they're beginning to enjoy themselves again and saying, wow, okay, there's a lot right. more we can do than previously we've been doing. Well, it's really interesting, you know, that, that whole notion that both of you talk about in terms of community and public spaces and brands contributing to that through, you know, networks like out of home digital networks, where that, that suddenly becomes possible. It's fascinating, probably to both your points, untapped. I could keep going, but I I will get in a lot of trouble if I do. So what I need from both of you is essentially your final key primary takeouts uh, or counsel for brands and agencies towards Gen Z and what they should be thinking about and doing. Yeah, great. Okay, so for me, mine would be that is to be brave enough to actually let them take over the reins. It's not just about collaboration. It's about how their creativity could actually define what your next campaign looks like. It's not just about them being responsive to what you deliver in a crossover between an out-of-home environment and, 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 and what goes on digital and what goes on in other in-real-life environments. It's the fact that we transform this generation into both active participants, but also the, the, the key collaborators, the, the, the creators that define a new campaign. And it's that immersive and multi-sensory approach that I think is going to have quite a huge impact on the way that we think about how we leverage communications. Not a trick question, Chris, but a test question is that, would you, can you walk the talk on that? Would you let a 20-something or this gen take over a research project for the future laboratory, pen it, author it, drive it? Because is that what you're saying or am I just take, going too extreme here? Uh, no, Paul, they did. Oh, great. Well, so you got nothing to do with it. So what the hell am I talking to you for then? I should be talking to the people that know. <laughs> Good point. That's great. So you literally, so your team was full of of the people in question here or the younger gents. Uh, the majority great. of our team are under the age of 35. Absolutely. So um, okay. they are researching, they're writing, they're analysing, 
Uh, and of course, we're working with them to deliver the results. But yeah, we are a business that is driven by a Gen Z mindset. Well, I, my test question backfired on me, damn it. But nevertheless, that was a good, it was a good response. <laughs> Untouchable. Martin, your final thoughts on the key sort of counsel to brands and, and agencies on this? Uh, well, if I was giving a brief to agencies today in terms of, you know, what you need to do, I'd say, you know, it's about celebrating common values and moments that define Australian diversity and difference. The under 35 team that drives, driven a lot of this work and insight, could that same team that's under 35, could they deliver the same depth and meaningful insight to for boomers and Gen X, which are the generation that they're not necessarily think highly of, could they go up and deliver the similar stuff that they have down into their own gen? Oh, absolutely, because we are talking about a bunch of trained professionals here. So about they weren't that bit. just holding a mirror up to themselves yeah. and, and just looking at the, themselves in the mirror and, and, and kind of, you know, just um, just on feedback mode. So, yes, I think their, their ability, I mean, look, they're great professionals. This is one of the things I love about Gen Z is that their optimism and their veracity, I think, for and curiosity for understanding is making them a really, really great cohort when it comes to empathy, when it comes to actually thinking about the collective. And that makes them very good from our perspective as researchers, analysts and writers across all age demographics. So, yeah, I I think they've got an enormous future ahead of them. Uh, Well, I did say at the top that you were great defenders and it's turned out to be very, very true. Um, Martin Raymond, Chris Sanderson, great conversation. Very frustrated that I have to stop it, but I have to. So thanks for joining. Stay safe and enjoy getting back to subarctic temperatures in in the UK, I think. Uh, We wish you well. (laughs) Excellent. Thanks very much, Paul. Thank you. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.